Thank you for joining us today. Um, my name is Krista Bisnath. I'm the Senior Advocacy Officer at Freedom United. Freedom United is an advocacy organization empowering the world's largest anti-modern slavery community to take action to end modern slavery and human trafficking around the world. We believe in bottom-up mass action to transform systems and values so that forced labor in all forms is rejected. Today, we're having a very important discussion on prison labor and exploitation. According to the latest global estimates of modern slavery, forced prison labor accounts for one in seven of all forced labor cases in the world. Today, the U.S. incarcerates 1.2 million people in its state and federal prisons, and according to a recent ACLU report, incarcerated workers produce more than $2 billion in goods and commodities while earning an average of $0.13 to $0.52 cents per hour. Some states do not pay incarcerated workers at all. Today is the start of Black History Month and is also Freedom Day in the United States. In commemoration of the day, the 13th Amendment was signed by Abraham Lincoln 158 years ago. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution purportedly abolished slavery and involuntary servitude. It states, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall, be, shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. This exception or punishment clause begs the question, did the US really abolish slavery with the 13th Amendment? In order to thrash this out, we'll be discussing the history of the amendment, the US's stance on forced prison labor elsewhere, the country's current reliance on prison labor for essential services, and whether incarcerated persons view prison labor as a path to rehabilitation or not. As we explore these questions, we hope that this webinar helps broaden your knowledge on this topic. After the discussion, we'll have a brief Q&A with questions from the audience. If you didn't send us a question ahead of time, you can send questions on Zoom or Facebook chat um, or on Twitter. We are live streaming on Facebook and YouTube. And anyone posting on social media can use the hashtag force prison labor, amend the 13th or end the exception. And our handle is at Freedom United HQ. Please feel free to tag us. So now I'm gonna introduce our brilliant panelists and then we'll get started. Sean Kyler is the operations manager for the Vera Institute of Justice's Advocacy and Partnerships Department. He leads the team's work to end the exception clause contained in the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. He holds a bachelor's degree in behavioral science from Mercy College and a master's degree in professional studies from New York Theological Seminary. He's a published author and writer and lives in New York City. Max Parthas is a spoken word artist, slavery abolitionist, and social justice activist. He's the national campaign coordinator for the Abolish Slavery National Network, and co-host and executive producer for the podcast, Abolition Today. Max directly assisted in removing slavery exception clauses from the state constitutions of Colorado, Utah, and Nebraska, and has also been key in organizing over 30 states under the network's objective of ending constitutional slavery. Darcy Nunn is the executive director of legal services for prisoners with children, co-founder of the coalition Abolish Bondage Collectively and founder of All of Us Are None. 
He is the first formerly incarcerated director of a public interest law office in California. Dorsey has been instrumental in changing the national narrative around formerly incarcerated people and centering people with conviction histories as experts in the field of criminal justice reform. So we're gonna move on to our questions. And the first question is for Sean. Sean, according to the ILO's Forced Labor Convention number 29, 1930, forced labor is work undertaken involuntarily under threat of a menace or penalty. This applies to all persons, including the incarcerated. Bearing this in mind in prisons as elsewhere, there is labor and then there's forced labor. Why do so many advocates regard US prison labor as forced labor? Thank you for that uh, question, Kristen. It's an important question. Um, and to the audience out there, the short answer to that is because there is no protection for people who are incarcerated working in prisons. Um, what my um, introduction didn't say is that I'm also formerly incarcerated. I spent 24 and a half years in New York State prisons working in this forced labor system. Um, I've held jobs for, from menial jobs to the max jobs, which paid fifteen fifty dollars uh, every two weeks for 10 days work for work. Um, I've, I've held positions work. And so when we think about this question and how work in prison, um, it really, and it's it, a little bit of this is, is traumatic because it takes me back um, to that period. So bear with me. Um, it's forced labor, first of all, because there's no choice. Um, a person doesn't have the freedom to say, I don't want to work. I want to do something else. I want to better my education. Um, I want to work on my case. I want to go to the law library. And when you are at the program committee, which is how the system works in New York City, you are told if you do not uh, accept a job or some type of educational programming, then you're subjected to a misbehavior report. You're subjected to being uh, locked up. You're subject to limited privileges, which will allow you only to have an hour uh, of recreation a day, and you may actually be locked in your cell. And so there's really no choice in the matter that you have to work or suffer major consequences. Thank you so much, John, um, for sharing. Um, we really appreciate it, especially given um, that it's a traumatic experience for you to recall and, and share with others, but we, we deeply appreciate it. Um, Dorsey, our next question is for you. So um, California's prison firefighter program reportedly saved the state a billion a year while paying workers a dollar an hour. Regarding the program, one former firefighter told NBC, can it be looked at as some form of indentured servitude or slave labor? Yes, it could be. Yet formerly incarcerated Chandra Bozelko wrote for the LA Times that she found prison labor was fulfilling her existential duty to society, and that many incarcerated firefighters shared the same sentiment. 
she says that it is not the incarcerated, but people on the outside who are against prison labor. What would your response to her be? My response would be, uh, I got 30 chapters of All of Us and None. All of them are formerly incarcerated people. Uh, one of the co-founders of the formerly incarcerated and convicted people and family movement, all of those are formerly in incarcerated people. Uh, so to actually take the word of one person and that actually set the standard for what we actually believe, I think is absolutely ludicrous. Uh, I got two formerly, uh, two formerly incarcerated people in my organization that were firefighters and they didn't feel like they was anything less than enslaved. You know, uh, so like uh, everybody that I know that actually been forced to do the labor uh, at gunpoint, uh, forced to do the labor at uh, 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 by having their families uh, disrupted and, 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 and having access to their families, they'd be shipped off all over the, uh, 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 the state, thousands of miles away from their home front if they actually refused to actually uh, toil uh, for pennies on the dollar. None of them agreed that it's anything less than slavery. Uh, and by the way, if she wanted to feel fulfilled, she could have actually uh, been doing stuff like walk around the yard and collecting money and donating it to, you know, uh, the cause to fight AIDS or actually uh, uh, taking up a collection to actually send people to, uh, to uh, uh, advance their higher education because those are some things that uh, uh, imprisoned people do also. So there's other ways that you can feel uh, fulfilled and necessarily uh, and not necessarily to buy into the concept of slavery because like uh, uh, involuntary servitude is slavery. And I think that when we get down to the question of uh, race and class on the outside, when I'm talking to people, particularly whites, they keep calling it indentured, in, in, indentured servitude. They're not calling it an involuntary servitude. And you can have people all around the co country being forced to toil up under these conditions at gunpoint. And, uh, and the most that I ever made as a, a prisoner in the 11 years that I, I, I served time was $32 a month. Uh, so most people can see me as a criminal. Uh, probably their guilt won't allow them to see me as a slave. Thank you. Thanks for that response. And I think that brings us uh, very neatly into the next question um, where you left off in terms of seeing you as a criminal and not seeing you as a slave, because that's the, the tension with the 13th Amendment is that it does allow slavery in prisons. It literally says that. And the fact that it still exists 158 years later means that this is acceptable on some level to the vast majority of the country for whatever reason. So my next question is for Max. Um, and it's that the US takes a very strong stance against the forced labor of incarcerated Uyghurs in China, um, passing the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act last year, which assumes that all goods made in the Uyghur region are linked to forced labor. Freedom United has a campaign calling on the Chinese government to end the detention and forced labor of Uyghurs. So we fully support the UFLPA, but we can't help wondering why does the US government find that forced prison labor is wrong in China, but acceptable in the US? Is the criminal justice system in America that much more wholly faultless and trustworthy? Uh, I'm gonna give you a very simple answer to that. It's the height of hypocrisy. 
Um, as simple as that. Uh, the United States and its government are hypocrites. Um, they are practicing legalized slavery, human trafficking, and forced labor while denouncing it in other nations that are not doing it as much as we are doing. But I'd also like to state that uh, slavery is much more than the one-dimensional aspect of just labor. Uh, there are two components in the exception clause of the 13th Amendment. It says slavery and involuntary servitude. Slavery is not limited to just labor. There's also the warehousing of bodies, even up to pretrial detention in places like Rikers Island, where in order to incarcerate a single individual in a pretrial detention center costs $556,000 a year. That's not a cost. That's an incentive to incarcerate. And we also heard from the Department of Justice on a number, a, a number of occasions, including Eric Holder's speech in Ferguson, when he explained that the city of Ferguson was using its police force as a revenue gen generator. So with slavery, you have far more than just labor, uh, free labor. You've got slave catchers, you've got slavery supporters, you've got people who exploit the incarcerated and their families. It goes through the whole gamut, all the way from the beginning to the end, including the school to prison pipeline. So I think it does us a disservice uh, when we only focus on just prison labor, which is just one aspect. As a matter of fact, right now, as we speak, they are burying the body of Tyree Nichols. Now, Tyree Nichols wasn't subject to forced labor, but he was certainly subject to slave catchers out hunting human beings in order to fill these cages. Thank you, Max, and thank you for making that distinction. Um, and yeah, that that's a very it's a very important point. Um, and especially uh, the warehousing of bodies, as you put it, um, because it's also a, a huge problem with um, immigrants who are detained by ICE and they're, they're kept and they're, they're, they haven't really been convicted of anything and they're, they're still being made to um, work as well. They're being forced to work. And we'll come back to this point that you made about um, incentivizing uh, incentivizing incarceration. Being... Exactly. So, um, Sean, we'll come back to you for a little bit of history about the amendment. So, could you share with the audience the difference between the slavery abolished and the slavery allowed for in the 13th Amendment? Yes. And so, when we think about the 13th Amendment um, and how it's been taught to most people, myself included, um, during school, um, we think about what has been abolished is chattel slavery, the owning of a person's body. Um, we think about seeing people, um, Black people, not just people, but Black people, um, in chains on on these high rises being sold to white men um, to go off into these plantations. And when we think about the 13th Amendment and, and what they actually did, it masked slavery a little bit and took that out of the public's eye and put black and brown bodies into the prison system behind walls, into these um, plantations 
and we think about convict leasing as well, um, which was the end result of at least the first five to 10 years of slavery when the 13th Amendment was enacted. And so if we fast forward to today's time, what slavery looks like behind the wall, instead of black and brown folks being put on platforms and being so, they're actually going through the criminal legal system, being convicted and sending off far into other places to do work to help other communities and not necessarily the communities that they come from and where they're arrested from, especially in New York. Um, there is no prison in New York City. However, a large majority of people that are incarcerated in New York State come from the city and they're shipped up to these northern uh, cities where they are leased out to the community to do cleanup under gunpoint. Um, it's not like the South or, or California where you see uh, the officer slash overseer on the horseback um, with this AR-15 or some type of large weapon, but it's a little different in New York. And so it's still the same slavery. It's just by a different name. And by the way, um, I think that the block you said that they can't sell you on, they can go to the stock exchange and sell you. So it's like, you don't, you don't have to have the block, you know? So we're being traded in private prisons. We're being bid on and, 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 and did. And every one of us that then been to the pen and did the dance of a slave, then told you to lift them, cough them and, and, and spread them. Uh, so we, we, you know, we ain't had that, uh, that break. And by the way, in your introduction, you said what Lincoln did, what Lincoln didn't do was tell the slaves in, in Texas that they were, they, they were free. That didn't happen until you two uh, years later. So we wouldn't have no Juneteenth if they played straight up from that point. And they didn't play straight up from that point. So that's how come it took so many years. You know, they had telegraph machines. They could have telegraphed people and told them. So they had to send in people to actually enforce that stuff in Texas, you know. Uh, but anyway, I don't want to get on a rant and a rave. <laughs> Absolutely. No, that, that's fine. And 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 you're next up again anyway. So my question to you was about the state reliance on prison labor to provide essential services and how heavily does the state rely, especially California, we talked about the firefighter program, um, how essential, uh, how are essential services being provided by prison labor and how sustainable is this as a governance model? Because you do hear the argument, for instance, in California last year, when um, you and others were taking that movement to try and get uh, a ballot movement, uh, a ballot measure for the midterm election so that it could be removed from the state constitution, you're told that the state can't afford to do that. So could you speak to that, please? A, um, I've always, first of all, I'm an abolitionist, a prison abolitionist. I, I need to say that flat out. Uh, and uh, uh, I've been home since 1981. I've had no other job than other than fighting for the full restoration of civil and human rights in my life. That was, you know, and my prior job was that of a slave. So like that's, you know, where I'm at. And, uh, you know, and, and I can get into questions, the differences about having it as a moral argument or having it as a financial argument. 
Uh, we lost uh, ACA3 in the state of California when the governor decided to actually do, uh, said what would it cost to actually uh, pay people, right? And when it came to it, the cost would be uh, $1.5 billion when he had a surplus that could have easily cut uh, covered that much, you know? And I think that we're so dependent on it and it's so uh, commonplace that we don't recognize it when we see it. We don't recognize it when we passing people picking up paper on the side of the freeway. We don't recognize it uh, uh, when people are out there. Uh, and it's not just a question if they're fighting fires because we have had occasions when people died fighting fires for a dollar an hour. And uh, when they do that dollar an hour, that's the top of the scale for people in California in the event that they actually got paid for their services. And by the way, it's not just they do slavery uh, based on uh, uh, people's uh, conviction history. In places like Alameda County, you got people being forced to work or being uh, paid uh, less than nothing uh, to actually prepare the food so they can actually market that stuff out in other places. You know, so at a certain point, what happens when slavery is not necessarily contingent upon a conviction, but uh, but but contingent upon uh, just the incarceration by itself. And by the way, uh, my body had a value, whether I worked or not, so I can agree with Max. Max, they sold me, and my body was worth uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, and that was dependent upon something. When you say that we get into it, we got institutions like in in uh, uh, Susanville that's refusing to close because they actually think that it would actually impact the city if they closed the prison, you know? So we're gonna maintain people in the custody. We're gonna maintain people up under slavery because it's profitable uh, and uh, uh, for the state of California. And by the way, I suggest that everybody read the book Slaves of the State by Den Dr. Dennis Childs because he's writing about stuff like that. But we got uh, 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 cities that will fight for the, uh, uh, the continued incarceration of people because it served the interests of the city and people on the outside. It don't necessarily serve our families. It don't necessarily serve our communities. It, you know, so like uh, if you really want to think about this question about why is it uh, that they don't want to do it is because they serve these selfish interests and up in the capitalism, it served the greedy. Thank you. Um, and uh, that brings us to Max to discuss the relationship between prison labor and mass incarceration, which ties into, I think, what Dorsey was talking about just now. Um, I do want to clarify some things as well. <clears throat> I am a slavery abolitionist. I'm not a prison abolitionist. I'm not a criminal justice reformist. And I am not a prison abolitionist. I am a slavery abolitionist in the vein of Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman fighting the same exact thing. Um, and also, there is a definition for slavery. Uh, many people don't even know what the definition of slavery is. And uh, if you're going to be an activist fighting against something, it's a good idea to know exactly what that thing you're fighting against means. So at the Abolish Slavery National Network, we go by the Harvard Book of Bellagio guidelines, uh, which are based on the 1926 Slavery Convention, which the United States has signed on several times, including, uh, I believe, 53 other nations. And it says the, le the legal definition of slavery and international law is found in Article 1 of the 1926 Slavery Convention, which reads, slavery is the status or condition of a person over whom any or all of the powers attached to the right of ownership are exercised. 
So it's about the rights of ownership. Do you literally own someone? And as Dorsey pointed out, we are buying people right now on the open market through prison stocks and jail bonds. You can be a 12-year-old boy in China and go online and purchase people. Uh, it's as if they, they want you to think you're buying beds and that you're buying buildings. But the truth is you're buying the fact that those beds and those buildings will be filled. And the contracts that these for-profit private prisons uh, have with the U.S. government guarantee them anything from 80 to 100% occupancy for up to 25 years, which means you're predicting that these prisons are not only gonna be filled, but they're gonna to continue to grow. And when you have prison for profit, it creates a demand for prisoners. And so if you don't have enough prisoners, then you simply make more by criminalizing people, uh, particularly minorities and the poor, uh, which is what we see every day. Uh, through things like sagging pants laws or uh, marijuana prohibition laws or many other ways in which they criminalize our lives. I just saw a video a few weeks ago where an 80-year-old grandmother, Black grandmother, I believe, believe it was in Alabama, was being arrested because she didn't pay a $77 water bill. Now, that's debtor's prisons, and yet it's supposed to have been abolished, but it's here still. So the connection with slavery and mass incarceration um, is the incentivization of incarceration. It creates, it's, it's what it is, is actually an economic development program that is used not only in America, but has been adopted globally now with the growth of these for-profit private prisons. Uh, there's a prison, for instance, in Ghana. It's the oldest prison in their nation, which was built to hold 600 people but it's currently holding 6,000 people in some of the most inhumane conditions you can imagine. In Turkey, they built over 200 new prisons in order to house dissidents. Not because they wanna house dissidents because the model we've created shown that they can create a fortune by uh, taxing their citizens in order to house the unwanted in prisons. I don't even use the term mass incarceration because it's a misnomer. Uh, it does not tell the true story. It's a watered-down version of what is happening that accuses no one and holds no one accountable. If it were truly mass incarceration where everyone was being uh, it was equally subject to it, there would be 5 million more white people in prison right now. But that's not the case, nor does it point at the racial aspects of what's going on here. So it's very much a neutered-down version. And you have to ask yourself a very simple question. Can mass incarceration be abolished? Is it illegal anywhere? And it's not, and it can't be abolished because it's not actually a thing. It's a description of an event in, in certain times. Uh, so I call it what it is, what the constitution calls it, and I act accordingly. The constitution literally says slavery, and that's how we treat it. Thank you, Max. And I will also stop using the term mass incarceration. <laughs> Thank you very much. If I may, just a little bit more on that. 
the term really didn't even exist until 2009, according to the records that I've read between 2007 and 2009 at the birth of Twitter. It was only used four times. It did not become popularized until the book by Michelle Alexander came out. And then suddenly everybody was calling it mass incarceration. But that, as I said, is something that neuters down the truth of what is actually happening here. Absolutely. And um, this is a question I would throw out to any of you. Um, if you could, building on what Max is talking about, explain for the audience and for persons who will be watching this webinar later as it's being recorded, um, the uh, makeup of the prison population in terms of ethnicity. Anybody? So I can, I, I can start with New York. Um, I would say that over 70% of the state prison population um, is Black. Um, I would say about 15% of the prison population is Brown. And the remaining population is White. Um, Ethnic-wise, ethnic I think the least uh, group represented uh, would be those of Asian um, descent. Thank you, Sean, because I think um, what's important about what Max um, has been talking about is that it's not about just about making profit off of owning people. It's also which people and how does this tie back to the history of this country and even the history of prisons themselves, you know, um, I'm sure any one of you can talk to how did prisons spring up in the first place in the US because they, they didn't exist, you know, at the at the birth of the nation. Um, does anyone want to tackle that one? Sure. Um, the first prison was created by the Quakers here in the United States, uh, I believe it was in Pennsylvania, and it was an opportunity, they thought, for people to have repentance, so they would read their Bible, they would have solitary confinement where they could be alone, and it was mainly for white people, it wasn't about black people, it was about re renewing and uh, rehabilitating white people, uh, so that was the first prison that was built in the United States, but the boom didn't happen until post-emancipation. Uh, so after the emancipation, after the 13th Amendment, here in South Carolina, where I am at, they built their first state prison in 1866, exactly one year after the 13th Amendment had been ratified. And we saw that happening all across the country. And within four short years, between 1865 and 1869, the prison populations in most of these Southern states went from 90% white to 90% black. It was a complete shift over. Um, and they used what we spoke of earlier, uh, the convict leasing uh, uh, laws in order to criminalize and then incarcerate and then force those people to work. And the life expectancy during convict leasing was a, a, a estimated about 10 years. So you was expected to live just 10 years. So if you looked at a white woman wrong, which was a crime, you could go into prison, be a, uh, subject to these working in these mines or on these railroads and expect to die in 10 years. It was effectively a death sentence for many. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> uh, the prison system boomed after the emancipation because they started using this new program. 
which wasn't really new. I've done the research on this 13th Amendment. It didn't exist in a vacuum. It didn't just appear out of nowhere. Lincoln wasn't sitting there one day and go, you know, I have an idea of what we might do. There was actually eight iterations of it that were used as a practice prior to it getting to the uh, 1865 Federal Amendment. It started in Vermont in 1777, where they created three exception clauses in their state constitution. And then after that, it went to the Northwest Ordinance in 1787. It went on to the Ohio Constitution in 1806. It went to the Oregon Constitution in 1843. And it went to the Alabama State Constitution in 1861. So this was not something they just figured out. They practiced it to see how it would work. And when they figured out this was the perfect way to re-enslave Black people, they put it in the Constitution. Yeah, I probably need to state that uh, probably that Walnut Street Jail that was the first jail, uh, it might have been their intentions to uh, uh, incarcerate whites, but what they eventually did was disproportionately uh, uh, incarcerate people of color, and that was the first prison inside the United States. Um, and without the the the, uh, the profit driven part of this equation, um, I think that you know, um, in the event that they couldn't turn a profit on it, they wouldn't be doing it. You know, I, I think that it's more than just a question that they hate just all black people. I think they actually make money off of hating all black people. Uh, uh, if you separate those two things, I think that it could come out a different way. And uh, uh, I probably won't stop using the term ma uh, 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 mass incarceration because I actually think that it generated a discussion that was much more broader and much more comprehensive than probably anything else that had fell out uh, 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 in the written form in a long time. So I think that it drove uh, 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 the question to be had in churches, drove the question to be had, you know, in different places, almost like uh, uh, the question around uh, uh, critical resistance driving uh, the intellectual body of people back to the question of abolishing prisons, which I actually think is almost like uh, uh, the gateway to hell and have them holding people just openly uh, enslaving people in the public and doing it in such a way with a narrative that actually invisibilize the practice, the fundamental practice of enslaving people. You know, so it can be written, unwritten, not written, uh, only thought about the reality of it is, it is the practice that I measure. And that practice is uh, what they're doing to human beings in this country right now. And I struggle from the bottom up. Uh, 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 on every every given point, you know. Uh, so the people that I know that have been enslaved, when we talk about that stuff, it is uh, in such a, 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 a terms that uh, uh, it wouldn't be allowed on this Zoom call. <laughs> it wouldn't fundamentally be allowed on this Zoom call if we was having a real conversation about what does it look like, what does it feel like. You'll get every course word that you can think of when people are responding to uh, what they have been subject to. Uh, and not only what they've been subject to, uh, the inequity of being subject to that stuff, why their families uh, 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 lingered in limbo and poverty, why their labor was actually being stolen. So as all of us are none, we're not only fighting for the abolition of slavery, we're also fighting for the wages to actually be paid in the event that you hold somebody. Because like if they just say like, we're gonna do away with the fancy words in the constitution and they still exploiting the ship, excuse me, exploiting us, periodly, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean 
that is, is, is equitable, not only to us, but it's not equitable to our communities, it's not equitable to our families, and it, and it amounts to uh, 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 the, theft that, uh, the theft of the labor is constituting uh, multiple billions of dollars uh, that, that's being stole from our communities in general. So it, it's like having this conversation about you know, abolishing slavery. Uh, I don't expect that they're gonna actually um, abolish prisons. But I actually think that we need to be demanding that they do something with prisons. Uh, and if we don't, I can't accept the notion that uh, uh, four generations from now, we're going to have, uh, what you say, 1 million, 1.2 million people in, the, in that, that existence, in that, uh, that thing. I think that stuff needs to be abolished straight up. Um, so I can't necessarily linger with the thought that anything that they did uh, justifies uh, that mass body of people particularly black and brown people. And we're only talking to the most part when we're talking about prisons. We're not talking about immigration detention uh, centers. We're not talking about these other things that somehow seem to be differentiated from uh, uh, their exploitation also. And I think that is a broader concept that we actually got to fight for that actually mean uh, that justice will look a lot different than what's being demanded right now, because certainly, uh, they didn't send me to prison for rehabilitation. They sent me to prison to enslave me. And if I just may just add one more point to that in, in, in the colorization of the prison system, we, we would be remiss if we didn't uh, highlight the war on drugs uh, in the 70s and how the prison boom uh, and the changing of the color of, the, of, of those that are incarcerated went from white to almost exclusively black. Um, in our communities, over policing, um, and 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 really just hurling people right into the system for any little thing to make sure that they got a criminal record so that they can use black and brown bodies uh, to further their agendas. So I, I definitely want to add that. Uh, a lot of that came in the '90s too, uh, like the three strike laws. Uh, yeah. There were twenty-five states that adopted these three strike laws in one form or another immediately in tandem with the Clinton-Biden crime bill. Uh, so I know people who are in prison right now for life. For instance, a man in Alabama who's serving a life sentence in prison, it was his third strike for stealing $8. $8 got him a life sentence. Another woman stole a coat because she was homeless in the winter and she stole a $100 coat and she got a life sentence. And there's 25 states that have that, which takes the powers out of the judge's hands and forces them to send people to prison for life. Those you know, like, absolutely, those mandatory minimums. Um, and in New York State, in particular, the prison boom, uh, the building of the prisons came from federal money. And we had, uh, in the 90s, um, I, in particular, uh, was incarcerated uh, in 1997 when the prison population was almost 78,000 people. Um, it's half that now, thankfully, but that was all due to federal money for right on sentencing uh, in this crime wave, uh, allegedly. Um, and so for New York State, that federal money, Patak, uh, Governor Pataki, who, who really ran on a tough on crime platform, was elected, and he took that federal money and, and, and really change the complexity of the prison system and the court system um, from top to bottom. 
and they were like, giving out sentences of 50, 60 years, 70 years. Um, I remember the first person I saw come up state with 60 years to life. Like it blew my mind that a judge could say, hey, I'm going to give you 60 years to life. And I had been incarcerated maybe about five or six years at the time. And just to think that someone would be subject to this for 60 years at 17, 18 years old is insane. It, it, when I say it, it's the practice for me. Uh, I went to prison in 1972. I was in, in the jail in 1971. My homies are just now getting out. So the practice for me is looking at my homies come out with no work life left, no way to get back, you know? So, you know, like when we look at it, it's like uh, 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 the human beings that I, that I was in prison with, some of them are just coming home, you know? And you can see people start struggling around the question of what to do about aging prisoners. You can see organizations that's doing that. And when you said that it was half as much as it used to be, some people in New York was on the front lines fighting for the reduction of that particular system. So if we don't sit around and we, and, 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 and we just accept the norm as the norm, then you know we're gonna have, uh, uh, I, I can remember asking uh, Angela Davis at one point, do you think that they would stop when they get to a million? She told me, no, they went to 2 million before we can blink our eye, you know? So like, I don't think that they stop on their own. I think they stop because we stop them, you know? And that's what I mean by organizing from the bottom up. So in all of us and none, when I say that we got 30 chapters, we organizing from the bottom up because there's other people struggling in isolation that actually want to fight back. So how do we go about fighting back, you know? And how do we go about actually putting resources in so people can actually engage in that fight back? So if we're going to be doing stuff like, uh, uh, fighting uh, 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 involuntary servitude is more than the question of the bodies. It's a question of how do we actually uh, 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 command, uh, acquire resources to engage in the fight, and who's all able to speak in a voice that actually says that I actually was punished as a slave, you know, because at a certain point, what happens when my homies are getting out and they're in their 70s at this point, and they didn't serve uh, probably from 19 to 70. You know, and uh, everybody they damn near know uh, that was fond of, they, they served more time and their closest homies are still in prison. You know, because uh, uh, their mothers didn't die, their, their lovers didn't die, and everybody didn't die. So at a certain point, what are we doing about uh, the theft of that time? Because that theft of that time is also significant. You know, so it's not just the labor. If you take it all and you're letting people out at 70 years old, what are they gonna do with the rest of their time, however short it is? And if you're letting them out in California, I think that we're a generous state compared to other states. They give them $200 for the new start. I don't know what you can buy with $200 in a new start. So I know that in uh, Alabama and other places, you could still be getting that $10 and that few dollars after they didn't stole massive amount of time. And uh, if you think about it this way, uh, we sitting on this Zoom calls, we got homies in prison that ain't never did Zoom. That wasn't there when we had the cell phone and they, they haven't been trained on the computer. All of that stuff is just stuff. They haven't had access to the technology that, and actually to keep up uh, with a lot of stuff they get. And I think that some of them are brilliant and smart people, 
They just not have, haven't had access to the stuff. And I think things that we take for granted, we possibly shouldn't because we still releasing people in that 70. And my homies, uh, the, uh, and by the way, uh, we changed the three strike law in California. Uh, and that came through a, a struggle. It didn't come through that they decided that was just a good idea to stop. Somebody was making a demand on the system. And I think that's what Frederick Douglass then was talking about. Power conceives nothing without a demand. What are we demanding about slavery? That's the demand that we, we hear the symbol around. What are we gonna do to stop them from enslaving us? And how are we gonna make it visible? Because on Juneteenth in California, they didn't even know that we was fighting for ACA3. So what do we do to actually have political education so that next time there's a Juneteenth, they'll know that the fight is about current day slavery and they'll be able to identify who those slaves are. I think one of the ways that we can do that is stop asking this as a question, does the 13th Amendment allow slavery and start stating it as a fact? Because by now we should know that it's no longer a question, it is indeed a fact, it's right there in the constitution. And in the intro, right there in the practice, <laughs> it's right there in the practice in the Constitution. So it's no longer a question. It's about what do we do about it? And what we've been doing about it with the Abolish Slavery National Network is opening the initial door that to change, which is to remove this exception clause or add anti-slavery language to state constitutions. Just last year, we had the Freedom Five, which was Vermont, Louisiana, Oregon, Alabama, um, and I'm missing one, but it, we had the Freedom Five before those states managed to remove these exception clauses for the first time in their state's history, like Alabama. So that's the beginning to open the door to systemic changes that has never been opened before. And what's the follow-up on that? Well, I've been meeting with lawyers all week long, uh, national lawyer organizations, in order to start challenging the badges and incidents of slavery. Now that it's no longer legal, we need to hold them responsible and accountable for performing these acts of slavery and inhuman treatment. So for instance, in Alabama, Kay Ivey, the governor there, just issued a, uh, a, a um, executive order, which basically says that organizing a work strike or refusing to work is a severe crime or high crime, which is nearly as uh, punishable as much as murder, as if you murdered somebody. In, uh, Alabama prisons. Well, that's now unconstitutional. She can't do that. And so we need lawyers who are going to challenge this in court. And we're doing that in Colorado. We're doing that in Alabama. We're doing that in Vermont. And we're going to keep doing that as we remove these exception clauses from state to state. This year, I have 15 states I'm working with who are doing the exact same thing, which means that we are going to flood these courts with these suits. And eventually, we'll start setting precedents and winning some of these cases. And Chris, if I, if I could just pick up on, on Matt's uh, last point. Um, in addition to that, it was Tennessee. Uh, Matt, Tennessee, that's what I missed. Thank you very much, yeah, Tennessee. Um, we have the Indy Exception campaign uh, that we've been running for the last year as well, which has an educational component. And what we found out uh, through um, data from Worth Rises we found out when we asked the question about how much people knew about the 13th Amendment, upwards of 75% of the people did not actually know that there was an exception clause within the 13th Amendment. 82%, right? Yeah. What, let alone what it meant. 
and the effects of it. So I, I wanted to uh, add that. Thank you. Thank you, Sean, for bringing that up. I was going to mention that as well. We're also part of the and the exception movement. And um, that's the reason we have this title for the webinar today, because even though it is a fact, as you say, Max, there are too many people who do not know this. I don't know how many family members I have who see things that I share and say, I had no idea. Um, so that's why we're doing this today. Unfortunately, most people still do not know. And we need to raise awareness. We need to educate. We need to do whatever we can. Yes. We hope that by asking the question, it, it raises some interest from people who, you know, um, were not taught certain things in history classes as, as kids. I, so, I understand it. I watched yeah. a clip today from Saturday Night Live where they were mocking the meeting between Kanye West and President Trump when he went in there and explained being the first person since Frederick Douglass to sit down with a sitting president in the White House and say that the 13th Amendment allows for slavery. And they were mocking him, only showing not that he's stupid, but that they were totally ignorant, had no clue that the 13th Amendment had an exception clause. And during that period that they were mocking uh, Kanye West about his statements, I saw many news outlets come on and literally show the exception clause in its entirety, read it, and then act like they didn't just read except for prisoners duly convicted. It didn't even register into their minds. Uh, so yes, the question, I guess we, we need to ask it, but at the same time, as the people who do understand this, we need to present it as a fact. Like this is what it is, period. Um, you may not know, and you may not know, but you're gonna find out today. You're gonna learn and, today. And you know, like, uh, like I, I thought about Juneteenth because like we lost ACA3 in California in Juneteenth. We were at 14 different Juneteenth celebrations. At, besides the one where I had the mic, nobody else got the mic to even talk about that we was on the verge and we were still fighting to end slavery in California. So like, you know, maybe or when I could keep saying the practice, maybe if there is Juneteenth celebrations, should this not be at the center of the conversation at a Juneteenth? If it's a moral question, should this not be at the center of, a, 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 of a, a conversations in churches, synagogues, and in the mosque? Should it not be there? Because we keep saying it's a moral issue. And I keep saying, hey man, it's about the bucks. You know, it was, you know, they've been they've been running us, you know. Uh slavery was always about money. <laughs> you know, so like, you know, even if there was a moral issue, I don't necessarily see where we actually confronting it as a moral issue uh in in a real way. So what is our practice when we're doing this stuff in a real fundamental way? You know, uh, and by the way, uh I think on Juneteenth last year, that happened on a Sunday. How many people were speaking to slavery that day? You know, so like at a certain point, uh, what does the organizing look like uh, 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 when we're doing this stuff? What does it look like when, you know, uh, 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 I think on Martin Luther King's birthday, uh, I think it was uh, in California, they're doing train rides and everything else. Who took the mic and says, what about the people they still holding in slavery right now? You know, so at these holidays that's supposed to be a whole full black month, what are we doing in the middle of this black month to actually emphasize this? And I thank whoever organized this e event, but it shouldn't be the only event that came up around this issue in the middle of uh, 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 of Black History Month. 
And when the history is that they enslaved us and they continue to enslave us, you know, so like that that brings up uh, an important question from the audience, Dorsey. So I think we'll just move into this section now. Um, they would like to know what you are all doing um, or your organizations are doing um, to fight and uh, struggle against this that can be replicated or shared outside of the US as part of the struggle to abolish slavery in prisons and elsewhere. So this is a question for you all. Somebody wants to help. They want to know what can be done, but not just from within the U.S., but also uh, externally. For me, we can export the, the written stuff that we got because we actually writing papers and we actually doing research about this. And hopefully that can translate and somebody else can replicate that in different places. Uh, on my staff, I have four attorneys, and I know that they're, you know, when, when we getting ready to get into the policy work, they're reviewing it and actually offering legal opinions about what does, what are we trying to implement it in terms of policy. So people could have access to what we have, uh, uh, because we putting out documents about this stuff in a real uh, productive way. I can't necessarily say that it, it will fit uh, what, what's happening in different countries. Um, because I've only been to, um, uh, I've only visited prisons in probably three or four different countries. I know I went to uh, Mount Eden Prison in New Zealand and, uh, and the color arrangement was uh, like the United States was mainly people of color. I went to uh, 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 Paulsmore Prison in South Africa where I seen one white dude in the whole prison. I seen, I uh, went to, uh, I think Mariana Prison in El Salvador uh, and it was, mainly feel of uh, of uh, a lot of uh, uh, of uh, uh, brown people. And the sad thing was that a lot of those brown people were raised in the United States because we started deporting immigrants uh, from the Los Angeles and San Francisco area back into El Salvador. So like, you know, so every place that I'm going, I know that I'm speaking to the issue of slavery. And, um, and, and, and as uh, uh, loudly as I possibly can say, can speak to, and when I go to any state and I'm traveling outside the United States, uh, probably, uh, hell, my wife used to hate traveling with me because we would wind up at some prison. Because <laughs> I, you know, I feel like obligated to actually go see how other people's is being, being uh, treated. And probably on my bucket list, if I have, uh, if I go out and find some resources on my bucket list, I'm planning on taking my whole staff probably to uh, uh, someplace like, uh, in Switzerland, where they actually care for people, see how they're treating those people, so we can have something, some way of thinking outside the box about what do we do about prisons in the United States that's uh, uh, that's not uh, reprehensible. Because I think that when they value human beings and they see them as their citizens and their families, then they actually treat them differently. John or Max? Yes. Um, we are addressing this as a crime against humanity, uh, slavery, which is illegal everywhere, all over the globe, basically. So I would suggest that if you're dealing with this, uh, like we are uh, in places like Ghana or Australia or South Africa or England, that you start addressing it as a crime against humanity, uh, rather than legitimizing these uh, illegal components of which constitute 
slavery, human trafficking, and uh, forced labor. So that's a start right there, is to change your mind uh, about what it is you're actually dealing with, which is why I mentioned about the mass incarceration. We don't want to neuter this down. We don't want to water it down. We want to address it exactly as it is, just like it says in our Constitution. And if you're in a country that is dealing with this, this issue, you should address it in the same way. That way you can get international support, like we're seeking to do while we're working with the United Nations, as well as other international groups, in order to do exactly that, to show that this is literally a crime against humanity in effect, including genocide. I mean, in the past 10 years, from what I understand, in Germany, they have killed less than 100 people. Their police have killed less than 100 people. But here in the United States, we kill on average about 1,200 people a year, just the police, not the prisons or the prison guards, just the police, which means in a single decade, we've killed 12,000 plus people. The police have in this country. That is a genocide. And if you add in the prison deaths, which come from negligence or direct involvement by prison guards and the medical teams and on and on, that number could triple up to as much as 36,000 people dead in one single decade. You could fill Yankee Stadium with dead bodies with what we have done here in the United States. So we really have to look at these things as they are and not as we want them to be. This is slavery and human trafficking done by the state legally through their constitution. And and briefly for my organization, we look at this on a national uh, level. We are not as yet looking uh, internationally um, or have sites internationally. We're trying to really focus in on, on changing our constitution and which is a long fight, a long, hard fight. Um, and so we partner in coalitions um, with people on the ground who are doing this amazing work and we partner with them to help them as much as we can. Thank you. So hey, um, I, I, I need to raise this, this one issue uh, because I think I'd be remiss to my homies. It may be against the constitution and it may be against humanity. Uh, I can say screw the damn constitution because it's wrong period. Fundamentally. I would fight this thing if they said it was a legitimate in the constitution, which I'm doing, you know? So like, I, you know, like I, I wish I can say that I, you know, I fully embraced the constitution at one point, the constitution that had us legally as slaves, you know? So like, you know, I, I don't put that much worth on it. All I want them to do is to stop the practice of enslaving people, whether it's constitutional or not, it needs to end period, you know? Uh, and I can say, I can dress it up and say, oh, we can just go by uh, their laws to get it to end. Uh, my homies in prison that actually walked off their whole lifetime in prison, uh, that was a waste of their lifetime. You know, so, you know, it, it got to end whether it's uh, uh, constitutionally or not. And I don't think that the only way that we go about this question is uh, 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 through uh, practicing law. Because I know that when we ended long-term solitary confinement in California, it was 30,000 people on hunger strike. So like, what kind of organizing are you willing to do to actually stop them from enslaving your homies? You know, so if it's only a conversation, a generic conversation, I'm willing to go further than that in terms of my struggle to end slavery. So y'all probably need to be conscious of that. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. And um, yes, I think uh, that was also raised by Max in terms of even if it gets changed in the constitution, even if it's changed in state constitutions, there's still an uphill battle in terms of getting it recognized. And, and um, it's just, I think, the beginning, I think maybe Max would say. So Yes, it's the beginning. You can't go anywhere without doing that. If slavery is legal, how are you going to have freedom? You got to make it illegal. And then you can work towards your freedom goal. So that's where we're at right now. And we're not limiting ourselves to just constitutional efforts. As I said, we're working with attorneys. We're working with the United Nations. We're working with educational experts in order to help with that 82% that don't know about it. And I myself do a weekly podcast, uh, educational podcast every week at abolitiontoday.org where I help to do that. Um, so yeah, it, it is many facets. There are a multitude of ways where we have to address it, uh, but you can't do any of it until you make slavery illegal. Otherwise, we're just banging our heads against a door right now or a brick wall. How are you going to have freedom and slavery in the same country? One is going to be a lie. Uh, so the Constitution itself, whether you agree with it or not, is the Constitution. We call ourselves a land of laws. And all of our police who are arresting people left and right are doing that because these are laws based on the Constitution. Uh, so we have to start with that. Uh, we've never done it before. So let's tr give it a try, at least, and see what happens. And up to this point, hey, hey, we've hey, been hey, very... Let hey, me just finish hey, this statement. Based on some other stuff like racism, homophobia, sexism, and capitalism. So it could be, uh, it's written in the law that way, but the people they're gunning down in the streets is not just based on the constitution. They're gunning down those peoples on the street based on supremacy, based on a number of other practices that they're engaged in that don't have anything to do with the constitution. Well, I think what Max is saying is that in terms of interventions and what's possible for people to do to address this, we do need to have some form of legal basis as well because we can't respond in kind well, i'm not saying hold hold i'm not taking anything off the table right i'm not so, i'm um, not saying you know i'm not saying that you shouldn't actually approach this thing through uh, uh, uh litigation i'm not saying that you shouldn't approach this thing through policy change i'm not saying that all these things is is, is uh, inconsequential i'm saying that they're part of a larger uh 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 a scope of things that actually should be considered, you know, uh, and considered in a real way, you know, Absolutely. So, so like, you know, I don't think that we got to, you know, uh, uh, the question of uh, uh, ending in, uh, uh, chateau slavery uh, based on just constitutional arguments. There was other things that was taking place to drive that question in a real different way, you know, so, you know, so if you limit it to just that right there, uh, uh, um, Hmm. God, I don't even know how to say this. Uh, for my freedom, I'm not going to ask you for permission for that. You know, that's what I, I need to say, you know, in real clear terms. Uh, I don't move past uh, asking for permission for half the things that I, I do, because most of the things that I do, people didn't even consider I could do them. You know, so I'm not asking for permission uh, for people not to enslave me anymore. And I'm not going to be standing around while they enslave my children uh, and saying, oh, this is just a horrible thing. 
You know, I will do everything that I can to actually keep them from slavery. Yeah, and I think we all agree with you <laughs> that it's a it's a multitude of uh, approaches, and we can't do this uh, just one by one in our silos. We need to work together. We need to to bring our different strengths and skills and experiences um, in order to tackle this. And I. I don't think that, uh, as everybody has already said, it's it's going to be easy at all. So any and everybody needs to show up for this fight. But let's move on to maybe two more questions from the audience because we're running out of time. Um, so we have a question about the disconnect between the engagement of it being slave labor and some prisoners really wanting to work in order to build their skills. And how can we have a system where for those who want to work uh, they can be fully covered and benefit fully from their work. Is it policy? Is it uh, prison prisoner unions? Hmm. I think I, I I would start off and, and, and Max, you probably um, want to pick this up um, and go a little bit further. Um, what we're saying um, as a coalition it's not that there shouldn't be work, um, but work should be voluntary. Um, and, and that signals a choice and some sense freedom. Um, there are individuals who wanted to work. I wanted to work, to, to be honest. Um, the, the Attica riots was partially about working and having better conditions because the men that were in adequate in their cells doing nothing and they wanted to better themselves to come back into the community and the uprising was about having programming along with other things one portion of it was programming so people could better themselves and so when we look at this issue um i think unions um will always be a, a good thing um to help workers protect themselves because there's no protection in, in, in New York State or in any prison uh, when we're talking about working. Um, those conditions are horrible, Lip, horrible. I don't care what system you look at, the conditions are horrible for people working. I, at one point in time in one of my many jobs, I used to sew uniforms for correction officers. I also used to sew uniforms and make uniforms for New York State, uh, New York City's DOT. These are contracts that the state got that were used in my body to fulfill a need. So union, I, I agree unions uh, would be a good thing. Hey, you know, I got uh, one of my staff members organizing uh, a, probably a panel discussion uh, with uh, former members of uh, the United Prisoners Union. Uh, and that, that existed probably um, 40 years ago. But we're looking at our elders who have actually did organizing around that question. You know, and I think people should be worked, uh, uh, should have work, but I think they should be paid. I don't want to distinguish that that homeboy shouldn't have been paid for say uh, uh, sewing those uniforms. I think you should have got paid. 
you know, uh, and I think that if you got paid and if you had any children, you could have paid child support. And if you didn't have any children, you could have saved up your money and been able to actually walk to prison, walk out to prison and be able to rent someplace. If we can actually remove uh, the question, have you been convicted of a felony off a rental agreement? So like a whole bunch of this stuff is still linked to uh, 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 old school discrimination, old school practices. And uh, I believe that people should have the right to work in prison but I also believe that they should pay them for their labor. I wholeheartedly agree with that, Dr. <laughs> should I chime in? Go ahead. Um, for us at the Abolish Slavery National Network, we're not mixing these two together. We had that problem in California where there was a bill already on the table that was not our bill about inmate labor and being paid for it. Our main purpose there and our bill was only about removing this offending language but it's allowed for involuntary servitude. It's a very complex situation when it comes to prison labor. Yes, those men and women are being exploited by uh, companies that are selling their products for exorbitant prices within the prisons. There's an economy there and they have to exist or they just want, might wanna do something with their hands and feet every single day outside of the board, boredom that comes along. Uh, so it's, you know, we could talk about how much they should get paid, but will they get paid or will the prisons take that money and uh, not give them anything but pennies on the dollar, which is what they do in some places. Like Starbucks uses inmate labor uh, to make their gift packages every year and they pay minimum wage, but the prison does not give that minimum wage to the inmate. They take all of that money out. So how do we protect them in those cases? Uh, you know, we have to really look at these things. And also there's, more than just monetary incentivization uh, in the California, for instance, when you work fighting fires, for every day you're fighting a live fire, you get a day off from your sentence. And that's another way to incentivize uh, labor within the prisons is by reducing sentences. Uh, should they get paid for what they do? I mean, yes, I think they should, but I don't think it's limited to just payment. Should they get rights? Do they get days off? Are they protected by OSHA? Is there safety standards involved? All of these things need to be taken into consideration. And there's a wonderful report that the ACLU put out, 154 pages long, uh, which is titled Captive Labor, I believe, in the United States. Everybody should read that. It really breaks down this whole labor system, who's getting paid, how much they're getting paid, and on and on. Because we can't do it here in this little conversation. It is very complex, but I suggest that everybody read the ACLU report that came out just last year. And at the top of their list of recommendations of changes was to remove the exception clauses from these state constitutions, which allow these institutions to do this legally. Because if you're not a human being, if you're not a citizen, you don't have any rights, which is why we have so many people who are disenfranchised from voting after they get out. Hey, hey, hey Max, I'm, I'm in California and I know that we're fighting on two fronts. You know, we're fighting for uh, 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 wages. I know that we're fighting on two fronts. And everything that you, 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 did, you said that people should be entitled to, to have a, surf, a safe work environment, we want that stuff too. You know, and we don't want to continue. Uh, 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 if they would have actually evaluated that, if they actually paid somebody, would people have been returning to prison so, so, so fast in the event that they had got out and been paid, they would have been able to actually secure a life uh, be, uh, uh, that's what's outside of desperation walking out the gate. You know, those things actually do need to be discussed because we're releasing people with nothing uh, uh, to actually fall back on. 
and we thinking that they're gonna just like, you know, that somehow when we was in prison, they sprinkle some magic foo-foo dust on us and we're gonna be able to survive after we leave the gates. Uh, some of us don't survive and some of us actually uh, uh, do harm based on desperation because desperation made bad choices look good. You know, so at a certain point, what do we do to, uh, uh, to do that? And I don't think that we lost because we had a wage bill. I think that we lost because we had poor organizing. So another question we have is whether- and By the way, I gotta go. I got a, a meeting oh, sure. that started at 12 o'clock and I'm 15 minutes late for that. So I hope y'all continue to have Thank this great so conversation. Much. Thank you for joining us. Okay. So, Sean and Max, um, another question we have is whether you think the US should replicate humane prisons um, like Halden in Norway, where prisons are not seen as punishment, but instead as safeguarding and as a support measure, or is the private profit lobby too big an obstacle for that to be possible in the US? I think it's a good idea to to try, but gotta remember Norway does not have to deal with the racism issue that we have to deal with. So that's a whole element that changes everything in this country because institutional racism exists here, whereas there's very few black people in Norway that they have to do to uh, to deal with. So I think that changes the complexion of everything, pun intended. Uh, but yes, I believe we can have a more humane prison system. I think the goal should be to have a more humane prison system. And if we were to do that, I think that we would end up with about 70% of our prison population being released because they never should have been there to begin with. They were only put in there in order to generate revenue for the prison industry. Um, most of our inmates are not violent offenders. They're not sex offenders. They're not murderers. Most of them are in there for nonviolent, drug-related, poverty-related crimes, and they shouldn't be punished. They should be receiving help. And that's the perspective that countries like Norway have. We, we're not here to punish. We're here to help, to try to make people's lives better, to rehabilitate. And that's not part of the conversation in the United States. We are pro-punishment, very much so. In Michigan, they just had an example would be a, a brother there. I can't think of his name right now. It's, I believe it's Pete. Uh, but he was uh, incarcerated for many years. He got out, he changed his life. He became an attorney. They hired or they elected their first black Supreme Court uh, justice in Michigan, uh, a woman, and she hired him as an aide. And then suddenly there was this uh, loud noises coming from justices around them, uh, other judges and people saying, how can you do this? How can you hire this former felon who shot at cops uh, because this is shameful. So what we're dealing with there is now uh, consequences after he's paid his time. He's already paid his dues. He's already rehabilitated himself, and yet they still want to punish him to the point where he's not allowed to advance in this important arena and his voice doesn't matter. So these are the things that we have in the United States that may be unique to us that we have to address as well. Sean? I so I have very little to add to that. Um, I would say that my organization, uh, prior to my uh, working here in 2019, actually went to Norway um, to visit their prison system. And what I can say, um, and they took some other people who were not uh, actually working here, but from my uh, conversations with some of those individuals, it was a life-changing moment to see how Norway uh, handles 
uh, their prison system and how humanity and, and, and the human side of is, is, is shown in everything that they do in their prison system. And their prison system is, is truly about rehabilitating their own uh, uh, people as opposed to when we think about the United States system where it's purely punitive um, from top to bottom. And when you think about, especially going through that system and coming out on the other side of it, um, I received very little from the state that went towards rehabilitation. Um, I have to say that um, I was incarcerated for a crime I didn't commit. Um, with that being said, I took programming that was voluntary, um, that was not mandatory, but was voluntary. And I got the most from those programs in building character and building uh, skills that were sustainable for me to transition from outside of the prison into this current role that I'm that I'm in. It was because of those uh, opportunities uh, from places like Hudson Link for Higher Education in prison that allowed me to, you know, become the person that I am today and move in some sense past that, but at least put it in the rearview mirror and still thrive in today's society. And so a part of the question that was asked about the the forces against progression. I think about New York's bail reform and bail reform across the country and the forces of the bail uh, industry and police uh, corrections, um, district attorneys, that force is real. And we have to combat that force and it's a powerful force, but it's not a force that can stop us from doing what we need to do because this is a serious moral issue that we have to stop having slavery and having this exception in the clause if we're asking others to do the same. Thank you both so much. We've gone <laughs> quite over our time. Thank you so much to the audience for joining us. Um, this has been a brilliant discussion and I hope we keep the conversation going. As we said, we need to keep talking about this. We need to keep um, raising awareness about it. And so I hope everyone will continue the conversation online, on social media, in their networks and keep the pressure up so that we can end the exception. Um, you can go on freedomunited.org and uh, find our campaign and sign our petition. You can go to endtheexception.com and learn more. Um, there's a fantastic breakdown of the history there. And we're going to be sending around a link to this recording so you can watch it again. You can share it with um, your friends and family. And um, we'll also include some links to uh, further reading and other resources that you might find helpful. Please uh, add abolishslavery.us to that list as well. Uh, we're the ones that's working on the state campaigns who have been successful now on seven occasions and we got 15 on the table this year and we need support and help, particularly fiscal support. So if you're able to make a don donation, go to abolishslavery.us and please do so. If you wanna donate your time, you can uh, contact us there and do that as well. Thank you, Max. Thank you. All right, thank you very much. Bye. Have a blessed day and thank you for putting this together. Peace, Sean. Thank you, thank you. It was a pleasure.